One of my favorite stories uh, in the Bible from, uh, from my childhood, I remember hearing Sunday school stories about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there's this, this Old Testament prophet of Elijah who does these crazy, powerful acts uh, of God's power in the sight of his people. And it's, a, it's an age among the, the people of Israel uh, that, is, uh, that is divided and corrupted. They're, they're worshiping false gods, particularly this, this god Baal uh, has been uh, introduced to them. And so now they've been sort of worshiping both Yahweh and Baal, right? So they didn't necessarily re- replace Yahweh, the true God, they've just sort of added Baal worship to their, uh, to their repertoire. And, uh, and Elijah has had enough of the, the double-mindedness. And so he calls all of the prophets of Baal uh, out to Mount Carmel for, for a showdown. And he says, it's just me. I alone am left among the prophets of Yahweh. And there's 450 prophets of Baal. So we're going to settle once and for all. Who is the true God? And in the sight of all of the people of Israel, uh, he, he challenged them to a duel, as it were. And he called to the people of Israel in that moment, and he said, How long will you go on wavering between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. None of this, let's have a little bit of both. Let's worship Yahweh on some days and Baal on other days. Or maybe we can mix in some Baal-like worship practices along with our worship of Yahweh. He says, make a choice. And then he goes about this showdown to demonstrate to the people of Israel that there is one and only one true God. And so he offers uh, the prophets of Baal the chance to go first. And he says, why don't you uh, set yourself up an altar and put a sacrifice on it and invite Baal, invite your God uh, to bring fire down and to light that sacrifice on fire. Go ahead, we'll wait. And so 450 prophets of Baal spend all morning dancing around the altar and cutting themselves and doing strange religious rituals and calling out to their God. Uh, And not surprisingly, there's no response. And Elijah actually begins to taunt them a little bit. He says, well, I, I don't know why your God isn't answering. Maybe he's busy or maybe he's gone on a trip or maybe he's relieving himself, right? Uh, but he's just too busy to listen to you right now. And so they can't get anything done. And so he says, all right, now it's my turn. And so he has people soak this altar. I've got this altar and I've got this wood and I've got the sacrifice. And he says, dump some water on it. Okay, dump some more water on it. Okay, dump some more water on it. There's no chance that this soggy wood is going to be lit on fire, right? And then he says... All right, in the, side, in, the, in, in the hearing of all the people, he says, O oh Lord, God of heaven, let it may be known that you alone are God. Send your fire down on this altar. And fire from heaven consumes this, this sacrifice. And it's obviously a, a dramatic scene. The prophets of Baal are shamed and then uh, executed shortly thereafter. Uh, and all Israel sees and knows God Uh, The Lord alone is God. The letter that Jesus writes to the church in Thyatira has a very similar message and tone. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2, we continue our journey through this uh, final book of the Bible in our series called The Returning King. He writes to the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And the, the message is very similar to that of Elijah to the, to the people of Israel. Choose, right? Quit wavering between two opinions. If Yahweh is God, then follow Him. 
Let me read for you verses 18 through 29 of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've seen, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are individual messages from the Lord Jesus through the Apostle John to seven local churches in the province of Asia Minor. And the order in which these letters are written follows a sort of a geographic pattern from going from the south to the north and then back down again. Roughly the passage that somebody might take in actually carrying these letters to the churches. And so uh, the, the, the church at Smyrna, which is the one we heard last week, would be the northernmost city. And now he's begun the journey back down. And so the, the church in Thyatira is written to in this message. Thyatira was a politically and culturally marginalized city, not substantial in terms of power or, uh, or, or influence uh, within the empire. Um, But it was a significant center of commerce, known particularly for uh, metalworking and trades that worked in fabrics and dyes. In fact, you might recognize one Thyatiran, uh, a woman named Lydia, who we meet in Acts chapter 16, uh, who was a seller of purple goods. uh, And she was originally from the town of Thyatira. Now, by this time, she apparently lives in Philippi. Perhaps she's moved there for business for the the selling of her fabrics, but that purple uh, fabric and those dyes that she works with were known to be the the sort of um, uh, trade in Thyatira. Uh, And Lydia becomes a believer in Jesus through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, and eventually her home becomes the meeting place for the church at Philippi. And so she's a significant uh, woman in the New Testament, and she is from this town of uh, Thyatira. And as with all of these letters, Christ begins the letter with an identification of himself 
uh, using imagery from chapter 1. And so as he appeared to the Apostle John and gave this, uh, this vision uh, of the risen uh, Son of God, the risen Son of Man, uh, he begins to use bits and pieces, images from that vision as he introduces himself to each church in a way that's particularly relevant to that church's uh, situation. And so to Thyatira, he introduces himself essentially as this, the all-seeing Son of God. Look at verse 18. The words of him, excuse me, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. He calls himself plainly here the Son of God. Now this was... John's sort of favored designation for Christ in his gospel. If you were to read through John's gospel, you'd find over and over again the pronouncement that Jesus is the Son of God. It's only here in Revelation. The term Son of God is not used anywhere else in the book of Revelation. Nevertheless, this is how John uh, thinks of and recognizes Jesus Christ, and this is how Jesus presents himself to uh, the church of Thyatira. It points to his unique relationship to God. He alone is the son of God in this way and thus to his sovereign authority. So it's a reminder at the start that he is the ruler over human history. The next two things, the eyes like a flame of fire and the feet like burnished bronze, they both come, of course, from chapter one. um, But they also are drawn from uh, the vision in Daniel chapter 10. And so there's a a lot of reminiscent. uh, The language is reminiscent there. So the eyes like a flame of fire point to Jesus's ability to see clearly through everything. He has an all-seeing eye. He sees through facades. He sees through hypocrisy. His vision is perfect. And he sees straight into the heart of man. I think we get a little bit of a commentary on what uh, that flaming eye means down in verse 23 when he says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And that's the effect of this eye like a flame of fire. He sees into the heart of people. You cannot fool him. And that's why his first words to each of the seven churches are, I know. Right? They all start with that. I know your works, or I know where you live, or I know, right? I know. He sees them. He discerns their hearts. He knows them better than they even know themselves. In other words, if you're a pretender, I'll know it. You might be able, by your outward religiosity, to fool friends and family members. You might be able to fool Uh, your pastors and fellow church members, but you'll never fool the sovereign son of God with his all-seeing eye. He knows where your heart is. And then his feet, like burnished bronze, are feet that are prepared to crush his enemies. I think there's an allusion to Genesis 3, 15, as as God said to the serpent that one day uh, the seed of the woman would uh, crush the head of, of the serpent's seed. I think there's, there's a reference there. Tom Schreiner says this, his bronze feet are of a metal far superior to any made in Thyatira where military grade brass was made and no one can stand before the feet of him who tramples those who do evil. So Christ comes to this church with a reminder of his sovereignty and of his perception, his awareness of what's going on in people's hearts and his future role as judge of the living and of the dead. He is the all-seeing Son 
of God. And he has for the church a commendation and a correction, which is the general pattern of these letters, except for two of them that have no commendations and only corrections. But the commendation that he gives to the church of Thyatira is substantial. This is a church of growing virtue. It's a church of growing virtue. Look at the way that he starts in verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. These are not small things. He recognizes that they, they have patiently endured probably pressures and persecutions that perhaps have come into their lives as we've seen the, the social and political pressure to, uh, to play along with the sort of Roman imperial cult of the day. Even being involved in the, the local trade guilds would have required some level of participation uh, in that system, which would be challenging for a town like Thyatira, which was so known for its, uh, its commerce. And so they've been, they've been patient, and they've endured, and they've been faithful. He points out their love. You're a loving church. You're, you serve others. Unlike Ephesus, remember the first church that he addresses in chapter 2 is to Ephesus, which was said to have lost the love that characterized it at the beginning of their life in Christ. Right? He, he commended Ephesus for their strong doctrine, but for their lack of, of love, their loss of love. But this church, he says, you're, you're, you're a loving church. You're a virtuous church. You're strong in these ways. And that contrast is made even more obvious by the phrase, your latter works exceed the first. Again, as though the total flip-flop opposite of, of Ephesus. Ephesus began with a fervent love that then waned over time. And here's a church whose love and acts of service to one another and to God has, has grown since their first days. This is a church that's progressing in godliness and in, in virtue. It's a church that's it's growing. And the fact that Jesus commends this gives us an idea of what Jesus values in a church and the kind of church growth that he thinks is really important. We talk a whole lot in our day about church growth, but we don't always have our eye on the right things. Our metrics are sometimes a little bit off. The, the kind of growth that he's interested in are these Virtues. It's growth in, in love and in stronger faith and in acts of service to, to God and to others and patient endurance. Right? These, are, these are the kind of things that he wants us to grow in. So we should be asking ourselves as we're moving along in time as a church, are we progressing in holiness? Are we increasing in words and acts of love toward others? Is our esteem for Jesus Christ growing? These are the marks of a growing church that Christ commends. So it's a church of growing virtue, and he commends them for this. Nevertheless, he says, I have this against you. And so his correction, takes up verses 20 through 23, is that they are tolerating evil. It is a church that is tolerant of evil. Here's the phrase that he, that he begins with. I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. And I'm going to stop with that phrase and unfold this a little bit. There's a few things to see here. Uh, number one is this. The name Jezebel is not likely uh, the real name of the person that's in view here. Uh, Jesus likely refers to 
The Sidonian woman, the wife of Ahab, uh, who, who, uh, who was the Israelite king, who became instrumental in introducing Baal worship to the people of Israel. Jezebel was uh, a worshiper of Baal, and she led her husband, the king, to introduce the worship of Baal into uh, the, the, the life of the people of Israel. And she is clearly portrayed in the book of 1 Kings as a villain. Uh, she is an enemy of God and his people, uh, and she is guilty of corrupting them and leading them away from God. And she becomes sort of the chief enemy of Elijah. In fact, the very next scene in First uh, Kings 18, after that showdown with the prophet of Baal, is when Jezebel finds out that Elijah uh, shamed and then had killed all of the prophets of Baal, she says, I'm coming after you. You better run and hide because I'm going to kill you. And so Elijah runs and goes into hiding for a period of time because Jezebel is after him, right? Uh, so Jezebel is probably intended by Jesus to evoke the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal and all of those images uh, of a woman in Israel's history who usurped authority and used it to lead God's people into idolatry. So I think that's what's meant by the name Jezebel here. I think it's a, it's a symbolic name to evoke that story in Israel's history. However, second thing I'd say is I think that Jezebel is a symbolic name for an actual person in Thyatira. I I don't think it's so symbolic that it represents just a vague general false teaching. I think there is probably a woman in Thyatira who calls herself a prophet who is teaching false doctrine to uh, the church. And calling herself a prophetess means she's receiving messages from God. So she could be saying to the church things like, hey, listen, God talked to me and he told me it's okay to participate in the Roman imperial cult. It's okay to uh, participate in the worship of pagan deities because we know that they're not real. It doesn't have any effect on your real life or your real faith. We know who's the real God. We follow Jesus and that's great, but it's okay. We can go along with the culture We can do what everybody's telling us to do in order to avoid the pressure that will come. And so perhaps in the name of a revelation from God, she's leading the people into idolatry and immorality. He says that she calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. That's the same phrase, although it's inverted, that he gave to Pergamum in chapter 2, verse 14. Right? That's the church we looked at last week. Uh, he said in verse 14 uh, that they were uh, following the teaching of Balaam, who put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So again, the teaching of Balaam that we looked at last week is probably very similar to the teaching of this prophetess that he's dubbed uh, Jezebel in Thyatira. Jesus clearly rejects this prophetess and her false teaching. But notice what he names as the sin of the church. He doesn't say that the whole church is guilty of false teaching. He says, you tolerate her. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. So some in the church are being led astray into this false teaching, clearly. Jesus is concerned about it because some of the members of this congregation have begun to follow in her footsteps and to uh, be guilty of idolatry and immorality because of it. But not all of them. Not all of the church has been led astray. There are those who have held true to the word of God and have not stained themselves in this way. 
And the ones who haven't themselves been led astray are nevertheless held accountable by the Lord for their tolerance of her false teaching. They have to this point been unwilling to confront and remove the leaven of this false teaching from their midst. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So if you allow a little bit of sin and bad teaching to go on in your church unchecked, it spreads, it grows, it corrupts the whole thing. And so there's great danger of this entire congregation being thus corrupted and led astray because of the toleration of those in the church who have not yet followed through, but who have not yet confronted and removed the false teaching. Why would an otherwise faithful, growing church tolerate ungodliness in their congregation? Right? He had such strong words of commendation at the beginning. I see you're a church that's growing in godly virtue. You're farther along now than you were than you started. Why would a church like that welcome false teaching and idolatry and immorality in their midst? I can think of at least two reasons. One is just plain cowardice. It's just hard. It's just going to cost too much to stand up, to fight back, to push it out. Maybe they're just afraid of conflict, afraid of ruffling feathers, afraid of the the fallout that might come or or the disagreements that might emerge in in the church if we were to to call this out, afraid of retaliation on the part of this prophetess and and her, her followers. Maybe they'll try to get back at her. Maybe even afraid of, uh, of the authorities of the state clamping down on them, right? Because what they're saying is, no, we will not. We cannot participate in the state's sort of sponsored religious activity. So maybe that leads to further pressure from the state. Maybe just plain afraid. A church can know the right thing to do and fail to do it out of plain fear. I think that's one possibility. But I think another one, and maybe even the one that's particularly more relevant to this church in Thyatira and churches in our own day, is is love or some notion of love. In the name of love, we're not going to confront this false teaching. In the name of love, we're going to be patient and let uh, let that go and hope that it kind of works itself out, right? There's a notion of love that necessarily means sort of leaving people alone. This is the notion of love that loves to quote Jesus when he says, judge not lest you be judged, right? That's not what Jesus means, by the way. Make no moral or doctrinal judgments at any time. That's not what he means. But that's the, that becomes the slogan of this kind of love. Live and let live. Let it go. Let people be their own, uh, their own selves and, and true to who they are, right? And so maybe out of love for people, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want them to feel belittled. I don't want to remove opportunities that they might otherwise have. So we'll just kind of let it be, right? Could it be that their, com- their, their growth in love has outpaced their commitment to truth? Again, the inverse of the church in Ephesus, who was doctrinally pure but deficient in love. Thyatira is is rich in love, and perhaps by that very token, because of that very thing, uh, they've become soft on truth. You know, I think sometimes the line between love and cowardice is pretty thin. In a fallen world, 
And in an increasingly godless age, Christ-like love will require courage. To love like Jesus does and to value what Jesus values is not easy. And it doesn't always look like what the world might call love. Sometimes it requires a hard word. Sometimes it requires an exhortation or a rebuke. Sometimes it requires a cost. The courage to draw boundaries. The courage to stand up and say, enough is enough. The church in Thyatira apparently had not to this point developed that courage. And so Christ calls to them, it is time. May the Spirit of God cultivate this courageous love in us that we might love as Christ loved without compromising truth. Well, there's judgment and mercy here. As Jesus continues to address the church and the situation as they've been patient and tolerant with false teaching, there's judgment and there's mercy. The judgment comes in a few ways. First of all, there is physical judgment on the false teacher. Think when he says uh, that he is going to throw her, Jezebel, onto a sick bed. I think he means that there will be actual physical illness that would befall her. Sort of like, if you love going to bed so much, I'll let you stay there. Right? You're going to be in a sick bed. You will, be, you will become ill. There's a similar pronouncement of judgment upon the, the harlot Babylon in chapter 18. I'm going to read you a few verses here so you can get, again, I think how interconnected uh, the book of Revelation is and how these letters provide a, a bridge to the rest of, of the book. So Babylon is, is, is portrayed as, as a harlot, right, as an adulteress. And he has this to say of Babylon in uh, chapter 18, verse 7. He says, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And then skipping ahead a few verses in 15, he says, The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. There is physical judgment to come upon the harlot of Babylon and indeed on this false prophet, this woman who is leading uh, the people of Christ in Thyatira into idolatry and immorality. So I think that's the first thing he says, that when he's going to throw her onto a sickbed, he will physically judge this false prophet. The second form of judgment is, is real-life consequences for idolaters. That is, those who go along with this false teaching and become involved in, in the sexual sin and the idolatry, the worship of false gods or the elevating of false ideals above God uh, who, who follow along. There will be real-life consequences for them. He says that there will be great tribulation on those who commit adultery with her. And I think that adultery here is, is a metaphor for uh, idolatry, 
right? Uh, in the Old Testament, God frequently used adultery as a metaphor for his people's unfaithfulness to him and their sort of unholy union with false religions. And so I think, again, having called Jezebel back to mind, I think he's speaking here of adultery in a metaphorical sense as the people of God being unfaithful to him. The people of God chasing other things, valuing other things, believing other things, and placing those things ahead of him. And so he says uh, they, will, they will have great tribulation. Trouble is going to come into their lives. If you abandon God and turn toward false idols, it's not going to go well with you. There's going to be consequences of your choices, real life challenges and troubles that God will sovereignly put into your life. Don't put that past him. Don't think that he's above that somehow or below that rather. And finally, the death of her followers. He says, I'll throw her onto a sick bed and I'll bring great tribulation on those who commit adultery with her. And I will strike dead her children. I will strike dead her children. And again, following that metaphor of adultery as, uh, as uh, idolatry, I think her children are those who have followed her into uh, this worship of, of false God or following of false religions. It's, it's a trading of the biblical God and gospel for something else. And I think he's saying here that in some cases they will actually die. If you think Jesus is too nice to strike people in his churches with physical afflictions and even untimely death, consider 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 32, where he's speaking about the way that the Corinthians have been taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. They have not been reflecting on their own life and sin. And they indeed, when they come together, they're using the wine to get drunk and they're withholding from some of their neighbors that they don't like as much. Right. So they are. And he says that they are eating judgment upon themselves when they take the Lord's Supper in this way. And Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and some have fallen asleep, which is a metaphor for death. That's a New Testament church. And he's saying, some of you, God has actually Made sick and put to death because you're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. Jesus is a holy judge. He will not be trifled with. And so I think he's warning them here. There are and will be real life physical consequences for the false teacher and for those who follow her. Judgment is a real threatening reality here. But don't miss the mercy. I see at least two forms of mercy here in these verses. First of all, notice in verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent. Praise God for the mercy of time. Couldn't he at any moment strike any one of us immediately upon our sin? But he hasn't. He's given time. Even to this false prophet who's leading people actively away from God. He's given her time to repent. How is God patient with sinners like this? He doesn't judge us immediately. Praise God. Are you holding on to sin today? Harboring unrighteousness, wickedness in your own heart or in your own life? Repent. It's not too late. There's time. The mercy of time to repent. The second way that uh, the second form of mercy I see is the mercy of of warning. Look at verse 
22, right? He says, I will throw her into great tribulation, etc. Unless they repent of her works. Unless they repent of her works. What is that? That's a warning. He's not saying, bam, it's over. It's too late. He's saying, this is what's going to happen if you don't repent. How merciful is a warning. He doesn't owe it to us. He's not obligated to tell us that there's a time coming where judgment will come. He would be righteous and just to mete it out immediately upon our idolatrous hearts. But he doesn't. He warns. He says, unless you repent, this will come. He tells us plainly what terrible judgments will befall those who turn from God to worship idols thereby providing a kind of motivation to remain steadfast in the love and truth of the gospel and to to root out the corrupting influence of false teaching and teachers from the church. And then he reminds them at the end of verse 23, and I will give to each of you according to your works. According to your works. Praise God for his judgment and justice and praise God for his mercy. And as a result of this divine judgment and mercy, he says, all the churches will know. Again, remember, he's speaking to all the churches, all seven of these congregations and all of the church universally. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I give to each one according to his works. In other words, Jesus's aim here is to be known The reason he does this, the reason he warns, the reason he judges, the reason he exhorts is because he wants to be known among his people. He is pleased to be known both by his mercy and by his righteous judgments. If you'd prefer to know him by his mercy, then repent of your false allegiances. Bow the knee to Christ alone as Savior and King. That's the message. Remember the Elijah and Baal showdown in 1 Kings 118, or 1 Kings 18? Uh, Elijah's prayer, when it was his turn to summon God to light his offering, was strikingly similar to this. In 1 Kings 18, 37, he said, Answer me, O Yahweh, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Yahweh, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And then indeed, when God brings the fire upon the soaked, soggy altar from heaven, All the people see it and they cry out, Yahweh, He is God. That's the point. That's why God does this. That's why He offers warnings. That's why He gives mercy. And that's ultimately why He judges sin. Because He will be known in His church and in His world. That we might see Christ is the Son of God. So, he commends them for their growing virtue. He corrects them for their tolerance of evil. And then he exhorts them. He has an exhortation for those who have yet remained faithful, have not yet followed through. And and here's, here's what it is. It's essentially this. Hang on. Hang on to what you have. He says in verse 24, To the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching... Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. By the way, I think that's an ironic name. Probably Jezebel, the prophet, was not saying, hey, I'm going to teach you the deep things of Satan. She may have been saying, what I know is the deep things of God. 
And this is Jesus' perspective on what those deep things of God really are. Actually, that's from Satan. So to those who have not yet followed the, the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Oh, how kind, how merciful. I'm not going to give you new things that you've got to follow. I'm just going to say this. Just hold on to what you have. That's all. Just hold tight to what you have until I come. The exhortation that really summarizes nicely the overarching message of the whole book of Revelation. All of these individual letters and all of the unfolding vision of chapters 4 through 22 all have to do namely with, with this message. Hold on. Stay true to Christ and I will come. And when I come, you will receive your reward. That's the, that's the point of Revelation right there in this sentence to the faithful at Thyatira. Hold fast what you have until I come. That's what the Christian life is all about. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in a fallen world, beset with sin and opposed to creation's king. Just hang on. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to the faith. Why do we need that exhortation? Because it ain't easy. We will be under pressure to relinquish it, to let it go, to soften it, to, to fuzzy up the boundaries, to lower the bar. Jude, the brother of the Lord, wrote uh, to, to a church in, in, in a book that bears his name, to, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend. You have to fight to keep it. You have to fight to hold it and for it to remain true. He says later in verses 20 and 21, You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's what the Christian life means. Hang on. Just make it. Hold on to what you have. Trust Christ. Stay true no matter what. And he will come. How easy it is to be led astray in this life. How little it can take to captivate a sinful heart with desires and obsessions that carry us away from the Lord Jesus. How fervently does our enemy, the devil, seek our deception and destruction? Brothers and sisters, don't go easy. Don't put down your guard. Don't flirt with sin and temptation. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Hold on to what you have until He comes. Keep us, Lord Jesus, we pray. And finally, there's a reward. Commendation, correction, exhortation, reward. That's the pattern that these letters follow. And after this exhortation, just hang on. Just hold tight to what you have. Remain true to me. Remain true to the gospel. Don't give up. Don't bow. Don't yield to the pressures. Here's the reward. A shared rule in the eternal kingdom. Shared rule in the eternal kingdom. Look at verse 26. It says, to those... Who conquer to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. I will give him the authority to rule over the nations, right? Authority over the nations. 
So here's these two promises, I think, that, that we see in verses 26 to 29. The first one is this. It's, it's shared rule. It's, it's the sharing of Christ's authority in the kingdom. To you, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He uses here the language of Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is, a, is, is known as a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that looks forward to the, the identity and the coming of, of God's Messiah, the Christ. And in Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, uh, the, the Messiah is promised uh, dominion over the nations. He says, to, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. And he goes on to say, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is language uh, given to uh, the Messiah, the Christ, who we know to be Jesus. And so the language of Psalm 2, clearly depicting the Son of God as the divine King, is here used by Jesus to describe the role that His people will share with Him in the kingdom. Jesus promises to share His rule and dominion with us. How amazing. And it's not just the elite, not just like those really special godly people that sort of get to rule over the lesser Christians. This is an aspect of eternal life for all his saints. And we'll see this again later in Revelation as well. A sharing in the rule over God's eternal kingdom in the renewed heaven and earth. I will grant you authority just as the Father granted me authority. Right? I'm sharing my authority with you over the nations. And then the second promise is life in his presence. That's a little bit harder to see, but we'll see it very quickly here in verse 28. And I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. We don't necessarily know what that is on the face of it, but if you were to look at the end of the book in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, this is in the epilogue. This is the last few words, right? In the, the last paragraph or so of the book, he says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus identifies himself as the morning star at the end of Revelation. And so when he says here to the one who conquers, I will give him the morning star, what's he saying? I will give you Myself, You receive the gift of me. Christ is the greatest gift in the gospel. Christ is the joy of heaven. Christ is the deepest source of unending bliss and harmony and glory in heaven. It is Christ himself. And he says, I am giving myself to you. You will be with me in my presence forever. Psalm 16, 11 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everyone who repents of his sin and trusts in Jesus Christ as his Savior and his King will be given the unspeakable privilege of eternal life in the joyful presence of Jesus Christ. This is a staggering and precious reality. It's a promise that Jesus gives to his people. Just hang on. 
Hang on to what you have. Don't tolerate evil. Don't wink at sin. Don't dabble in immorality. Don't welcome false teaching and doctrines. Stand up. Stay true. Hold fast what you have until I come. And this is yours. Where's your heart today? Are you wavering between two opinions concerning Jesus Christ and his kingdom? Are you devotedly following Jesus and his teachings? Or are you just the religious pretender, sort of playing the the church game, trying to keep up appearances? Are you dabbling in immorality and self-indulgence that threatens to pull you away from Christ, away from his church, away from his precious eternal promises? If the Lord is God, then follow him. Friends, let's cast aside the the prophets and teachings of Baal, along with the sin and immorality that can so easily entangle us and run full strength after Jesus alone, that the bright morning star might be ours for all eternity. Let's pray together.